Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we are so grateful. Grateful to be gathered together. Grateful especially to be gathered in your name, in truth. Because we are those who share in your life. Those who have been renewed by your great power according to your great mercy. I pray, Father, that we will never get past or too familiar with or casual or careless with this glory that is in the face of Christ and that is being reproduced in us, beholding as in a mirror his glory. Lord, it is so true that we speak better than we know. The richness of your salvation, the glory of your purposes, the power at work in all things at all times, the wisdom, the goodness, the mercy that is over all your works. Father, I pray that each one would be truly desirous of growing to know you ever more deeply, ever more thoroughly, ever more convincingly. That we would truly strive to grow up in Christ, to be conformed to him and in that way know you as he knows you. We are your people called by your name. And I pray that you would burden each one of us with the privilege of that, with the responsibility of that. That we would desire to be faithful, even as the Hebrews writer longed for his readers and himself, to be faithful in all things at all times. So again, we ask that you would meet us in this time as you have brought us together in your spirit, we pray that you will continue to lead us in this aspect of our worship today. And as we gather around your inscripturated word, we pray that it will minister to us according to your purpose for each one, according to our need. And we entrust ourselves at this time and indeed every day to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're drawing very quickly to the end of Hebrews, and I've been a little bit surprised that nobody's asked me where we're going next. I, don't, I assume maybe everybody thinks I'm going to have a stroke and this will be the end of it, but um, I do actually have a plan beyond this, <laughs> believe it or not. 
Um, what I would like to do after we finish Hebrews in, in a couple of weeks is to uh, do a series in the Psalms, not so much going through all of the Psalms, but starting from the recognition that the Psalms were the very center of Israel's worship and the, even their sense of identity and self-understanding and the Lord Jesus himself growing as a young boy would have spent hours and hours and hours in the Psalms. In worship, in the temple, uh, the, the Psalms were woven into Israel's feast calendar. And so I really want to try to flesh some of that out. Again, not Psalm by Psalm, verse by verse, but to hopefully give us a little bit richer sense of the Psalms so that they could maybe become more integral to our worship and our devotion and uh, our life with the Lord. So pray for me in that regard. I obviously haven't fleshed it all out, but um, pray for me, and Lord willing, we will uh, pick up in that way the, the beginning of June. But as I say, we're coming to the end of Hebrews, and uh, the writer has been laying out a series of exhortations, a series of, of charges to these Hebrews to whom he is writing, and interestingly now, he exhorts them on his own behalf. As he has been exhorting them for their sake, he now exhorts them on his own behalf. And what we're going to see, I hope, is that the very faithfulness that he was burdened for in their regard, the faithfulness uh, under which he instructed them, exhorted them, even warned them, is the same uh, faithfulness that he sought for himself. And so he entreats these saints to pray for him in view of that. This is verses, seven, uh, verses 18 and 19. And again, you know, it's very easy. We come to the end of an epistle like this, the depth, the thoroughness, the richness of the instruction that the writers brought. And now it's all kind of winding down and it's easy to just treat this as just kind of a throwaway. Uh, let's just, let, okay, we're done, let's just move on. But I really do think that there is a richness here, and I think some very important things for us to consider. And um, I hope and pray that, that uh, we will be able to do that today. But he says, pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably with integrity in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Once again, a very simple statement, in this case, a petition for prayer, uh, but I think very, very rich, and I hope it will be enriching to us as well. Interestingly, this, this writer, we don't know who it is. Obviously, there are those who thought it was Paul. There are those who thought it was Silas, perhaps Barnabas, perhaps somebody else. Uh, you have to go back to the beginning where we considered the questions of, of authorship. But obviously this individual viewed himself as having a kind of authority, teaching authority with this group of Hebrews. That he could instruct them, that he could admonish them, that he could exhort them. There was a, he was in a certain sense a kind of rabbi to them. And yet he did not view himself as above them in any way, as superior to them. In fact, he saw himself very much dependent on them. He wasn't exempt from the pressures that they faced. He wasn't exempt from the lives that they were living. 
Just the fact of this petition that he issues, I think, shows that in his mind, he very much regarded this thing of the unity of the body and the mutual interdependence of the body. He had the same concerns for himself and his own perseverance in the faith as he had for them. And he recognized that their ministry to him was just as important to his perseverance as he believed his was to them. And specifically what he sought from them, as we've seen, is their prayer. Pray for us. Now, some commentators believe that that's basically a literary plural. In other words, he's really talking about himself, but he's speaking in that uh, plural form. You often see politicians do that when they're talking about, you know, their campaign or it's us and we've done this and we've accomplished that. Well, that's a kind of literary plural. There are others who believe that he is referring to himself as well as his associates that would have been with him at that time. Um, We're going to see clearly he had some connection with Paul's ministry because he speaks in verse 23 that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon I shall see you. So he was a part at least in some sense of that ministration of Paul, Timothy being very much associated with Paul's ministry. And maybe he's including those individuals. We don't really know. But his his, the, the, the heart of the issue is his concern and seeking prayer from them, his concern that he, and whether it's him singly or those with him together, that he would abide faithful in all things, that we will remain faithful. We will remain faithful. There are those who believe perhaps he was imprisoned at the time, And certainly he wrote to these Hebrews uh, of the fact that they themselves had uh, experienced imprisonment, the loss of their property. Perhaps he was in prison. There's a sense in which there's a kind of indication of that. Pray that we would be able to come to you all the sooner. Something was constraining him in his desire to return to them. We don't know. Some people believe that he was, like I said, imprisoned and struggling and, and, and seeking their help in prayer that he would persevere and that God would be pleased to release him and have him restored to them. Others believe that he was just speaking more generally. And in a way that we could all speak generally, asking for prayer that he and perhaps his associates with him would simply continue to be faithful in their walk, that the good conscience that he had, that he would be able to maintain it, whatever challenges would come, whatever things would press against him, and that God would be pleased to bring him back to them at the earliest convenience. So we don't really know, but those are some general observations about it. But I want to break this down in terms of of two parts here. This idea of prayer as it relates to faithfulness in relation to God, and then also as it relates to faithfulness in relation to other believers. Faithfulness within the body. So he starts off, interestingly, and this has been the subject of much interpretation. He says, pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a good conscience. Some English versions even drop that little uh, particle for. 
that transitional conjunction uh, because they're not sure what to do with it. But that's what he says. Pray for us, for we are persuaded that we have a good conscience. And as he's speaking collectively, I think what he's doing is this good conscience speaks to uh, a a kind of settledness, a lack of self-accusation, but ministerially, not personally. Pray for us, for we are persuaded we have a good conscience. And my point is that he's not referring to his specific sin condition? Am I sinlessly perfect? Am I aware of any faults or any failures or any violations? He's talking about, from a ministerial standpoint, we have a good conscience. We have been faithful. And I think a further support of that is the fact that he uses this particular term rendered good or or well or excellent or whatever. It's the term kalos, Everywhere else we see this expression, good conscience. Paul, Paul uses it a lot. Peter uses it. It's, it's a, a different term, agathos, which means something that is essentially good, good in and of itself. This, the term that he uses, the adjective refers more to goodness that is manifested and observed. Not what is inherently good, but what is demonstrated or manifested as good. And so we are persuaded concerning a good conscience, a manifested, attested conscience. conscience. And that speaks again to ministerial issues as opposed to what's going on in his own heart. So I believe he's saying that their goodness, their good conscience pertain to their faithfulness, whether it's again him individually or these that are ministering with him, faithfulness in fulfilling their calling on behalf of the Lord and his gospel. He's saying simply that we are persuaded of our integrity and faithfulness in carrying out the work that the Lord has given to us, and demonstrably so. We have demonstrated faithfulness. We have a reason for a good conscience. Well, well, what's the connection then between pray for us, for we have a good conscience? And we desire to be, to have integrity, to be faithful in all things. Probably, at least in my study of this, probably the most common view is that what he's getting at is that he's explaining and defending his letter. In other words, he's been very direct, he's been very forthright, even kind of stern at times. And the tone of his letter, the exhortations, the warnings, even perhaps the way that he has treated Judaism itself, writing to Jewish believers, that he was sensitive to the fact that perhaps this letter, he could expect some who read this letter to take some offense at it, to push back against it. And he's saying you need to understand we have a good conscience in all that we do, all that we're about. We're about the work of the Lord. I have a good conscience in penning this letter. I wrote it out of a heart of love and concern. I didn't write it to indict you. I didn't write it to lord it over you. I wrote it to encourage you and to minister to your faith. 
In other words, he's trying to vindicate what he's done here by pointing out his good conscience. And that's certainly a plausible view. Like I said, it's a common view, but it seems to me that the epistle itself doesn't maybe point in that direction in the sense that, to me, I read this epistle as expressing a very deep intimacy between him and these readers, such that he wouldn't have to explain to them what he was saying or even his tone or why he instructed them in the way they did. When you know somebody really well, you don't tend to be as defensive when they seem to come at you in a fairly stern way as when you don't know them, right? Because you understand that they love you, that you understand their concern for you, and they're speaking in that way out of that sort of a heart. And I'm not convinced that he would have needed to somehow justify the way he spoke to them because he knew them well. And in fact, he bound himself very tightly to them. Others believe that he is speaking, uh, that's what behind his statement is a trying circumstance that he's enduring. He and his companions, perhaps again imprisoned, uh, some sort of persecution, some sort of difficulty. And so then what he's doing is he's wanting his readers to know that he and perhaps those with him are holding firm in their faith and conducting themselves as they ought to as Jesus' disciples, but he's asking them to pray for him in that regard, for his continuance in that. A third option is that his petition actually flows directly, this verses 18 and 19 flow directly out of verse 17, and his exhortation to be persuaded concerning and to submit to leaders. In other words, in a certain sense, this writer is a kind of leader to them. He is a shepherd to them. And as he exhorted them to submit to their leaders and to allow them to do their work with joy and not with distress... What he's now asking is that the way that you can do this on my behalf is to pray for me. I'm not there with you, but pray for me. But in the end, I think what matters, because we don't know for sure, obviously these Hebrews understood what he was getting at, but we don't know the circumstances. But but what's most important and what we can know and what matters is that he was affirming by asking them to pray for him and sharing again his conviction of a good conscience. He's affirming his solidarity with them, his oneness with them, and even his solidarity with them in terms of his expectations of them. What he expected of them, he expected of himself. And that points us towards the second piece of this, which is how this petition for prayer implicates the faithfulness that is in the body and the way that the body ministers to itself. As I already said, his petition, just the fact that he asked them, pray for us. Yes, we have a good conscience. We're persuaded of it. But our desire is to, be, to have integrity, to stand firm in, in faithfulness in all things. That underscores his sense of closeness with them and dependence on them. Closeness with them and dependence on them. 
the letter makes clear he felt his life was very much intertwined with them, even as they were sharers in the Messiah. He wrote to them as a brother in Christ, not as a scholar delivering a theological treatise, but writing to them with passion, with concern, with a burden, with zeal, that they would stand firm, that they would endure all the things that they were suffering. And how would they do that? By being more deeply rooted in the knowledge and the conviction and the the unity of their own hearts and minds with Jesus their Lord. The better they knew Jesus, the better they would be able to endure what was coming in their lives. But it's a pastoral epistle. He was one with them. And so he didn't ask for their prayer just as a kind of rote passing platitude Uh, Okay, I'm done basically telling you what I want to say. Oh, pray for me. Okay, yeah, move out the door like we tend to do. Pray for me. It wasn't just a rote platitude, but it came out of a deep sense of conviction. He understood that their prayer for him was crucial to his own faithfulness. Them praying for him was crucial to his own faithfulness. And you see this very much. We tend to not notice it. I I don't tend to notice it, I guess, perhaps. But Paul spoke this way a lot. You look at the way he ended his epistle to the Romans. And he says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Strive together with me. How can we strive with you, Paul? You're not here. In your prayers for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshment and rest in your company. See, he found himself dependent on their prayer and that the way in which they would strive together being in different locations was being united in prayer. Common mind, common heart, common burden. He writes to the Corinthians. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. You weren't there with us. But we want you to be aware of it, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a trial of death and will yet deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers." He will deliver us, you joining with us and helping us through your prayers. And then to the Philippians, he writes, I want you to know, brethren, same sort of idea. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, his imprisonment. That my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become so well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, he's imprisoned in Rome, writing to the Philippians a Roman province in Macedonia, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, observing me and being strengthened in their faith through me, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Yes, some to be sure are preaching Christ from envy and strife, 
for their own advantage, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. That's what I care about, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. However they feel about me, however it impacts me, that's what I care about. And I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus the Messiah, through your prayers. The scripture everywhere shows that a right understanding of prayer says that there, this mutual dependence that we have is very much centered in this issue of prayer. He petitioned them for their prayer, believing that it was crucial to his own faithfulness. Even though he was their teacher, even though he's instructing them about faithfulness, he also exhorted them. He needed them for the sake of his own faithfulness. Progress in the faith, here's the point. Progress in the faith depends on mutual ministry, not just one's own personal discipline, one's own personal knowledge, one's own study, one's own spiritual exercises. The body causes the growth of the body. How does the spirit do his work? Through the gifts and the ministration in the communion of saints. Progress in the faith depends on mutual ministry. Nobody can do the Christian life alone. And in fact, the farther we're removed from a vital connection with other believers, the more we languish. We certainly don't grow. We may learn more information, but we don't really grow up in Christ. I read Ephesians 4 last time, and that's very much what Paul is getting at. How the Spirit's gifts and ministration in the body cause the body to work together towards its growing up. We cannot do the Christian life alone. And we live in a culture defined by autonomy, independence. Every man is his own God. Every man does his own thing. Every man has his own faith, his own truth, his own this, his own that. And that's permeated the church. But this writer understood, even though he could, in a sense, be the rabbi to this group of people, he was just as dependent on them as he believed they were dependent on him. And so he wrote to them out of a sense of burden that they intercede for him. But that burden that he had for, his, for their faithfulness was the same burden that he had for his own faithfulness. What he sought for them, he sought for himself. And he asked them to pray for him as dearly beloved ones. And not just for the sake of his own perseverance, his standing firm, as he said that we will have integrity in all things, but he said, pray all the more, all the more feverishly that I would be restored to you soon. See, it wasn't just about his concern for his own faithfulness and his own sense of, 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 you know, holding himself fast in whatever he was suffering or enduring. But he also asked for their prayer, especially that God would be pleased to reunite him. There was a sense of devotion to them, not just that I need you and your prayers for my own faithfulness, but that I need you for you. 
I need you for you. Some have viewed this again, starting from the premise that there was some kind of a, you know, a little bit of tension or a little bit of distance between them such that he had to explain his epistle and his tone and his instruction and get them to understand he had good motivations. That same idea has caused some to say what he's really talking about here is a desire to be reconciled to them when he says that I would be restored to you the sooner. He's talking about reconciliation. And this, this idea of restore does often mean a physical healing. Jesus restores the hand of the crippled person or he restores this. It can mean that sort of healing idea, so the healing of a relationship. But again, he's writing to them with great passion, great intimacy, great devotion as beloved brethren. He's instructing them, yes. He's exhorting them, yes. He's warning them, yes. But in solidarity with them, as one with them. And if you go back from the beginning, and, and, and you, know, you can look uh, at chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, and then you know, farther on. But, but as he's exhorting them, it's let us, let us, if we... He's got himself right in the thick of it with him. He's not wagging his finger at them and saying, you guys need to get this figured out. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to be warned. You need to be exhorted. If we neglect so great a salvation, if we, but we are convinced of this. We are convinced of that, right? He writes to them as if he's writing to himself in the midst of that group. He's very much in the thick of it. I don't think this is an issue of reconciliation. I think it's an issue of longing to be with them. Just as Paul wrote to the various churches, he longed to be back with the saints. He longed to be together with the people. And then the last point I want to make, and then I just want to draw out a few conclusions. Um, His petition to be restored to them He asked them to pray that God would do this work soon. He doesn't make his plans, set his itinerary, says, here's what I'm going to do. I'll be there on this day. You know, make a bed for me. Here's my plan. I'm going to be there. He said, pray all the more intensely that God would be pleased to restore me to you soon. For all of his zeal, for all of his desire, he knows that his days, his seasons, what's to be is in the Lord's hands. And he was yielded to God's will, both ministerially and personally. He longed to be with them, but as the Father brought them together again. Pray that God will bring this about. And again, in our culture where we're able to solve so many things and do so many things, we don't tend to pray in that sort of a way. We don't tend to have that sort of of an orientation. I can find the money. I can find this. I can get the skill. I can get the job. I can fix this. I can fix that. I can make it happen. We don't live with that kind of dependence. In fact, we kind of chart our course and then we want to script God into it on the side, right? Here's what I'm going to do. This is what sounds good. This is what sounds best. This is what I think I believe God would have for me. Then I go do it. And then I say, surely, God, this is what you want, isn't it? 
How often do we really wait and rest and pray? And how sincerely do we really even ask one another, pray for the Lord's leading? And here I stand until he moves me on, right? Well, in conclusion, uh, I, I want to draw out some things about this idea of prayer and even what I think was in the writer's mind and certainly what I think the scriptural uh, perception of prayer ought to be. Prayer is essential and it is effectual. Reading those passages from Paul shows that Paul very much believed that the prayers of the saints were instrumental in these outcomes, right? The things that God did, he said, this has happened through your prayer, you praying together with me. Paul saw prayer as essential, but he saw it also as effectual, not just as a waste of time or spouting off our wish dream to God. Prayer is essential and effectual, but not in the way that we tend to think. You've heard me say a lot, religion is magic. All human religion is magic. All human spirituality is magic. It's me and the spiritual powers out there. And magic is me laying hold of and manipulating whatever resources are available to me. Physical resources, emotional resources, intangible resources, me laying hold of the resources that are available to me to, in a sense, put out overtures to the spiritual forces or the deities to get them to be receptive to me, to hear me, to be amenable to me. All human religion is that way. It's magic. It's manipulating what's within our resource to accomplish our desired ends, to prevail upon spiritual powers. You see the priests of Baal cutting themselves and jumping, on, jumping around, right, trying to get Baal to hear him. And Elijah's mocking him and saying, maybe he's in a far country, maybe he's gone to the bathroom, he'll be back in a few minutes. But that's what we do, right? Jesus said, you believe that you'll be heard for your many words. You babble and you ramble and you go on and on. Religion is magic, and my point is that prayer, as it's tied to this thing called faith, you know, religious life or spiritual faith, itself becomes another instrument or an aspect of this thing called magic. If we say the right words in the right way with the right heart, then we'll get what we want. Then, then God will respond. This is behind a lot of charismatic theology. You know, obviously the extremes of like the word of faith movement, the idea that faith is a force and words are the containers of the force. And so you speak the words in the right way and you call into existence that which you speak. It's magic. It's the manipulation of reality and forces, spiritual forces behind the reality by what we say by how we say it, by the conviction that we bring to bear. Even the idea we tell people, well, God didn't answer your prayer because you must have unconfessed sin in your life. Have you ever heard something like that? See, if you did it the right way, it would work. There's something 
between this in this formula. There's unconfessed sin in your life or there's something you're not dealing with. And therefore, that's why God isn't responding. He would give you what you seek if it weren't for this barrier, something that you need to deal with in your own life. It's the reason why there's so much discussion about prayer changing things or prayer changing God. You know, a passage that that always comes to my mind is uh, the the golden calf episode. You know, in in Exodus, where, where the Israelites, Moses is gone and they think he's not coming back. And they're wondering how they're going to get to the promised land now. And they make this golden calf. And Moses comes down and he shatters the tablets and God says, step back, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses says, no, don't do it. And the text says God relented and he didn't destroy them. We say, well, see, there it is. Moses changed God's mind. And that's not really the point of the text. The issue was Moses pled God's own purposes, God's own covenant faithfulness. He pled with God that This is about you and your faithfulness. This is not about me changing your mind. So the question is, what sort of person prevails with God and in what way? Not can my prayer change God's mind and make him do what I want him to do. But we read it as prayer changing God's mind because that's how we naturally think. And that's the point that I'm making. This passage says is not saying that. But it's also saying importantly, and I've hinted at this before as well, this is a leader in a sense or or a a rabbi to this group of, of Hebrew believers, and he is asking them to pray for him. He's dependent upon their prayer. And it shows then that the pastor or the elder or the priest or the rabbi or whatever doesn't have uh, the red phone that goes direct to heaven. Well, if the pastor prays, then it'll happen. Or if the elder prays, then it'll happen. Because they're closer to God. They have the red phone at their desk, right? The writer didn't think that way. He's asking them, the people he's been instructing, to pray for him. Again, God intends, here's the points, God intends and seeks mutual ministration in prayer. Not the prayers and the non-prayers, not the leaders praying because they have, you know, the red phone to heaven. Mutual ministration in prayer. It's a key aspect of the Spirit's working. People have asked me, does the Spirit do this work of Christiformity? Is it the Spirit that conforms me into the likeness of Christ? Or does the body cause the growth of the body? And the answer is yes. It's the Spirit's work, but the Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. The Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. That's what the spiritual gifts are all about. They are enablements empowered by the Spirit by which a given person is able to serve the good of the other. And just like everything else, spiritual gifts tend to be viewed in terms of me and how this distinguishes me. I have this gift. I have that gift. I'm a this. I'm a that. The gifts are the way for me to put myself in the pecking order. And it's the reason that I have the gift of prophecy. I have the gift of this. 
I have the gift of that because it's a way to distinguish ourselves. And the gifts are empowerments of the spirit that work very organically and, and you can't grab a hold of them and, 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 and put them into a little tiny narrow definition. It's the effusive, ever-present working of the spirit in the body such that as all these, this gifting in the various parts work, then you have the body building itself up in love. Once again, it shows why we can't grow apart from the body. And it also shows why we are grieving and quenching the spirit if we're not vitally connected with other Christians. Because if we're Christians, we have been gifted by the spirit. What are those gifts for? For the ministration of the well-being and growth of the body. To the extent that we're not vitally connected with other Christians, we're quenching the spirit. We're pushing back against his work. Prayer is an aspect of that. Mutual ministration in prayer is a key aspect of the Spirit's working. To perfect the church, to, to nurture their unity and their holiness. Holiness and unity are just two sides of the same coin. Holiness is not my personal life and unity is what happens in the church. Holiness is the idea of consecration taken up in the life of God in Christ by the Spirit. And if I am taken up in the life of God in Christ by the Spirit, then I am ipso facto joined to every other person who is so joined to God in Christ by the Spirit. So holiness means unity, the unity of the organism of the body. You can't separate them. But there also can't be any unity where there isn't that reality of holiness. Because unity isn't same doctrine, same confession, same denomination, same music, same whatever. The unity is members of one another in the Messiah. Therefore, holiness means unity. Unity means holiness. And prayer, mutual bearing one another in prayer is key to that. That's why it's fundamental to this idea, even as was mentioned earlier, of bearing one another's burdens. Paul says, when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. What law are we bound to? The law of love. What does that look like in practice, bearing one another's burdens? What is key or central in bearing one another's burdens? Prayer. A disposition of prayer. The law of Christ means that instruction, that revelation, that truth, that binding uh, uh, truth that God has revealed in Christ that is bound up in him. The Torah of God that defines the church's identity, life, and destiny. That law of Christ is fulfilled in bearing one another's burdens. And in our culture, it's often easier to give money to someone or to give them a ride or to do this or to do that. But we don't really bear people on our hearts in prayer. We just don't. Maybe for a season, maybe for a moment, something really weighs heavy on our heart and we carry it to the Lord. But then the next day we've forgotten about it or we've moved on. Right. We don't bear one another's burdens as a way of life. We just don't. 
But that's the dynamic of this thing, pray for us. And we know God will be delivering us through your prayers. You see, the solidarity of the body in the ancient world, even though they were hundreds and hundreds of miles apart, sometimes maybe more than a thousand miles apart, yet they preserve the solidarity of the body by bearing each other in prayer. It's a high calling. It's an important calling. And so prayer is effectual, not as magic, not as getting God to do what we want, not as, you know, mixing the eye of newt and the, you know, the toad skin or whatever in the broth and, or making some little talisman to get an outcome that we seek. It's not effectual like that. But prayer is effectual as being the fundamental expression of the nature, life, and power of God's new creation. I'm going to say that again. How is prayer effectual? It's the fundamental expression of the nature, life, and power of God's new creation that is in the Spirit. Well, how is that the case? How is prayer at the very center of this idea of new creation? Well, what does new creation do? What has God done in this thing called new creation? He has reversed the curse. What's the curse about? Alienation, isolation, distance, estrangement. Between individual people and God, between individual people and one another, between human beings and the created order. That's what Genesis 1 through 3 tells us, right? Everything at odds with everything else. The vandalism of shalom. Well, new creation undoes that. It reverses that. So what does it do? It achieves the reconciliation, the reunification, and the reharmonizing of the created order. Well, where do we see that in the world around us, right? I don't see reconciliation. I don't see reunification. I don't see reharmonizing. Where is it? This bringing things back together, which is what the new creation is about, it has its existence, its reality now in the present age in two dimensions, both of them human. People as children and people as brethren. The first aspect is Godward. The second aspect is People word, horizontal. New creation ends this alienation, hostility, distance, distinction. Me contra you. That's what the fall did. It put everybody in a place of individual, independent autonomy, self-seeking. And in Christ, God has undone that. The bringing together of this fragmented, broken, alienated creation. Well, in the present age, that's purely a human thing. But there are two dimensions to it. The first, again, is this idea of children. And it speaks to the fact that the alienation between us and God has been resolved. We have been taken up in the life of God in Christ by the Spirit. Sharers in the very life of God. And out of that then flows this second, second piece of reconciliation, reunification, reharmonizing, which is this idea of brethren, 
members of one another, members of God in Christ, sharers in his life and likeness, and therefore members of one another, members of one another. Those are the present fruits, the present reality of new creation. They are the work of the recreator spirit. Prayer is at the very center of that. How so? Prayer speaks to this idea of communion or common union, right? Prayer isn't just me and God. It is. It has to be communion between me and God, but reflecting the fact of the communion that we share with one another. That's why Paul says bearing one another's burdens. He doesn't just say, pray to God, that fulfills the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, that fulfills the law of Christ. Prayer both expresses that dual reality of communion or common union, and it also nurtures it. This common union of I and you and you and me, I and you and you and me, that dual aspect of this reconciliation and reunification, reharmonizing, pulling back together God's creation. Prayer expresses that more than anything else, and it also nurtures it. And it's not limited by time and space, is it? Certainly not by space. Paul writes to these people who aren't there with him. And he says, your prayers for me have brought me through. That kind of prayer, authentic prayer, prayer that flows out of communion, that's the very essence of the life of new creation. And therefore, it's crucial to the church's testimony in the world. And so here's my questions. And I want us to think about this, not just say, okay, and brush it away and go on, but think about this truly. How do we pray? I think probably the weakest aspect of everybody's life as a Christian is their prayer life. But more than simply the idea of how often do you pray, how long do you pray when you pray, my question, how do we pray, is this. What is the perspective of our prayer? What do we seek in prayer? What is our goal in prayer? Even as we pray for one another, even as we pray for one another, how did the saints pray for Paul? How does this writer ask these people to pray for him? Pray for us that I'll get released from jail. And I'm not saying that those sorts of prayer requests are totally illegitimate, but generally when we bring people in and ask them to pray, it's here's something that's hard for me, pray that God will fix it. Right? Here's something that's difficult. And we particularly want to go to the guys that are closest to God because they'll probably be the most successful, most likely to be successful in, in getting this problem solved. Go to God on my behalf that this problem will get fixed. What perspective do we bring to prayer and what is our goal? What is our ultimate end in prayer? Do we, in, do we seek the, the communion of the saints in prayer 
based in this principle of becoming members of one another, this new creational community in Christ. In the, in the gospel, or not the gospels, in the book of Acts, when you see the church coming together to pray, one heart and one mind, they're praying concerning, again, what God has done in Christ and their responsibility to it and what it will look like for them together to be faithful unto that end. They're not coming together in corporate prayer, praying about private prayer closet needs, you know, my this, my that, whatever it happens to be. And again, I'm not saying all of that is completely illegitimate, but I don't think we understand really the privilege of, of prayer and what makes prayer effectual. What is really the effectuality of prayer? It's binding ourselves to, to the truth as God knows it, to the truth as he's accomplished it, to it's being one with him and therefore with one another in prayer in that way. And so that's the second piece of that. Is our prayer really the continual outflow of communion, common union? Does our prayer reflect the reality that our lives are hidden with Christ in God? Does our prayer reflect the reality that we are for now, for everlastingly now and forever members of one another? That we are sharers in one another in the spirit. I think when we begin to think about it in that way, we can understand how Paul can say that our ethic in prayer is to pray without ceasing. It's not, okay, I have my five minutes of prayer in the morning. I pray for five minutes before I go to bed. Or here's my designated prayer time. It's a life of continual, unending communion. Lives hidden with Christ in God and therefore members of one another. And that reality expresses itself in constant communion articulated outwardly or inwardly. Paul said, every time you come to my mind, I'm in prayer for you. Not just when you come and say, hey, I need this job, pray that I'll get this job. Every time I think of you, I'm holding you up to the Father. And my life is a constant communion with the Father, and therefore a constant bearing of the burdens of his people in prayer. And I don't want to belabor this, but but it is very important to think about these things in this way. Because we tend, I think, just to think of prayer again as something that Christians do. It's a part of our Christian ethic. Just like we go to church and we read our Bible and we give our money, we pray. That's what Christians are supposed to do. But this is about, this is about communion between us... That, This is about the manifesting of the reality of new creation, a life that is defined by I and you and you and me. I don't know how else to put it more simply than that. And so it is prayer without ceasing. People have said to me, how can I pray without ceasing? I've got a job to do. I'm an accountant. I can't be thinking about the numbers and be praying. Or what if I'm driving down the road? I can't be putting my head down and praying driving. I'll crash my car. Well, that shows that we really don't understand what I'm talking about. This is the life of constant, unending, conscious communion between us and God as taken up in him. And therefore, the bearing of one another as fellow members of one another. Simple, but like everything, it's a matter of a transformation by the renewing of our minds, thinking differently. 
thinking differently. Father, I pray that you would help each one to grasp these things. It shouldn't really be foreign to us, but it is. And we must confess, if we're honest, that this sort of continual communion expressed in prayer is not really the way that we live. We may have seasons of prayer, we may have times of burden, we may have times of reminder where we we find ourselves in prayer, but do we really live before you in the way that Jesus did? Is our life really defined by prayer? And prayer as it expresses the truth of new creation, a reunification and a reharmonizing of your creation, the summing up of everything in the Messiah so that our God will be all in all. And we are the first fruits of that. How can we testify truthfully if we are not a praying people? How can we live authentically if we are not a praying people in this way? And so, Father, I pray that you would strip us of the notions of magic, of manipulation, of prayer as a way to get what we want, to achieve desirable outcomes. I pray that you would strip us of prayer as some kind of a notion of changing your mind or moving you in a certain direction. I pray that you would take from us all natural notions, all natural ways of understanding and approaching this thing called prayer. It really doesn't matter how much we pray or how often. It matters that we be prayers in truth. And I pray that it would be so with each one of us. And what a glorious thing to actually be dependent on one another in that way. Not just a flippant passing pray for me, but to really seek and to understand the dependence that we have on one another in that way. In all these things, Father, we pray that we will grow, that we will mature, that we will find ourselves reflecting more truly and more thoroughly this reality of of a new creation in which all things are reconciled to you in the Messiah. There's a glory to it, there's a profoundness to it, there's an extent to it that we can't even imagine. We've never known a world like that. We've never known human relationships like that. But it is the truth. And we are the first fruits of it. And I pray that we would be about that business, that Christ would be exalted in the church and in the world. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.